I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. I wanna welcome everybody to the Design to Heal podcast. I am your host, Jeff, with Dr. Ben Rawl. Today, Dr. Ben, who do we have? We have somebody on the line, somebody you're excited about, so what's yeah, going on? Yeah, well, and our listeners will be very excited. Matter of fact, you'll probably, you might even know our guest today because of his, of his impact and really one of the leading voices in an issue that hits home to me personally, but just by the sheer numbers of people that are involved in this uh, this topic we're going to talk about today, it really affects all of us. We have with us today a gentleman by the name of Bob Whitaker, who is very um, well known as for his investigative medical journalism and books and, and material and articles regarding antidepressants, antipsychotics, really mental health in America, ADD, ADHD. Um, his book, one of the books that really opened up my eyes was called The Anatomy of an Epidemic. And he does, uh, for those of you that love science or evidence-based or show me the data, like this, you know, Bob kind of like you know, bleeds that stuff. Almost a word doesn't come out of his mouth that isn't that. I'm going to read you just a little bit of his bio, then I'm going to have him tell a little bit of his story. But um, just so grateful to have him on here and for his his body of work. Uh, Robert Whitaker has won numerous awards for journalism uh, covering medicine and science, including the George Polk Award for Medical Writing, National Association for Science Writers for Best uh, Magazine Article. In 1998, he co-wrote a series of psychiatric re on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Anatomy of an Epidemic won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Um, he also is a publisher and the founder of MadInAmerica.com, which is a critical psychiatry um, web webzine or e-zine or magazine. And so we are so thankful to have you on here. Welcome to the show, Bob. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit of how you got into this? Because I think you're, you're, it's important. You came into this, I don't think, you know, thinking psychiatry's, you know, got a whole bunch of problems with it. You were more bought into the, the mainstream. Do you mind sharing your journey with us a little bit? Yeah, no, I actually think this is quite important. I have a very conventional background. I worked as a, in, in, uh, as a medical reporter for the Albany Times Union for a long time. I was director of publications at Harvard Medical School for a time. I founded a co-founded a, uh, a newsletter that covered the development of clinical trials industry. And when I, the reason I got in, engaged with writing about psychiatry was not because of any interest in psychiatry. What happened was when I had that newsletter company called Sensor Watch, uh, I became aware of certain sort of abuses of, of uh, patients in research settings, including in the clinical tests of new drugs. So I went to the Boston Globe where I had written for before and proposed a series on the abuse of psychiatric patients in research settings. Now, at that time, I had a con completely conventional understanding of the history of psychiatry, which was 
that with the introduction of antipsychotics in 1955, that kicked off a psychopharmacological revolution, this great advance in care, and that we now had drugs that fixed chemical imbalances in the brain, like insulin for diabetes is what I was told. And that's and you serious. Believe, and you believe, you believe that at that time. That was your, of course. your lens. Sure, gotcha. Sure, of course. And because, you know, when, uh, when I would call up people from, uh, you know, leaders in academic psychiatry, they would tell me, well, you know, I was one of the things that we were doing in that Boston series was looking at studies where they had withdrawn, <clears throat> withdrawn antipsychotics from people diagnosed with schizophrenia. And we said, oh, that's unethical because these drugs are like uh, insulin for diabetes. Uh, this is what everybody had told us is that schizophrenia was due to too much dopamine in the brain. And these drugs, by blocking do dopamine, that's why they were said to be like insulin for diabetes. They fixed a known chemical imbalance in the brain. And so we said, well, why would you ever do a study where we withdrew, withdrew such a drug that you knew to be helpful and fixing some pathology? So that was my understanding, completely conventional understanding. And, uh, and we did other pieces about uh, sort of abuse of research uh, patients in diagnosed with schizophrenia research settings. But at the end of that series, when I did that series, I came upon some studies that belied that narrative of progress. One was a study, one, one was a study by Harvard researchers that found that outcomes for schizophrenia patients, rather than having improved over the last, say, 20 years, had actually declined since the 1970s and were now no better than in the first third of the 20th century. So that completely belied that story of progress. In addition, I came upon studies done by the World Health Organization, two studies, which compared outcomes for schizophrenia patients in the United States and five other developed countries with outcomes in India and two other, quote, developing countries. And each time they found that Patients in the developing countries had much better outcomes, so much so they concluded that living in, and by who I mean the World Health Organization, living in a developed country is a strong predictor that if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, that you won't have a good outcome. And I thought, well, why would that be so? And then I dug into those stories, into those studies. And after the first such finding, the World Health Organization researchers had hypothesized, well, maybe the reason for the better outcome in the poor countries or the developing countries is that they're more, the patients there are more medication compliant. They take their antipsychotics as prescribed. So in the second study, they looked at antipsychotic usage, and they found that in India, Nigeria, and Colombia, they used the drugs acutely, in other words, when the episode, first episode of psychosis erupted, but not chronically. They did not maintain their patients on antipsychotic drugs long term, whereas in the U.S. and other developed countries, that was the standard of care. So, so at that moment, I was confronted with this confusion. I believed in a story of progress. I had written stories about how these drugs fixed chemical imbalances in the brain, and yet Suddenly, I had these studies that said, well, we're not making progress. And in fact, they're doing better in India and Nigeria. And so after that uh, Boston Globe series ran, I got a contract to write a book called Mad in America that looked at, well, why are outcomes for uh, schizophrenia patients so poor in the United States and other developed countries? And as a very first step, I got on the phone with uh, leading academic psychiatrists who previously had told me a little bit about how the drugs were like insulin for diabetes. And I said, can you just show me where in the research literature 
you found that people with schizophrenia had too much dopamine, and thus the drugs, by blocking dopamine in the brain, you know, help, help fix that pathology. And here was the moment that set me on this long path of sort of challenging the conventional narrative and looking into it. They said, oh, we didn't actually find that. We used that, the idea that there are drugs like insulin for di- insulin for diabetes is a metaphor that we use to let people know they should take their drugs, but we didn't actually find that people so diagnosed had this chemical imbalance. And suddenly there, I, I now have this sense that, well, are we be are we as a society being told a narrative that makes the drugs look good, that shows advances in psychiatry, but may not be grounded in science? And that goes all the way back to 1998, but that's what launched me on this interest in seeing whether the conventional story about psychi- about psychiatric diagnoses and the merits of the drugs we use to treat them, is it a real story? Is it grounded in science? And the bottom line is, and this is the tragedy we are now experiencing as a society and have been for some time, is that you find that that narrative of progress, that conventional narrative that tells of drugs that fix chemical imbalances, it's really a story, it's a false narrative. It's not grounded in, in science. It's grounded in a, in, a, in a story that helps build a, a market for these drugs, help builds the prestige of uh, psychiatry in the United States from a guild perspective. But when you dig into the science, you find out it's not true. Uh, I think this this is so fascinating, and I just want to pause here for a second because, I mean, I can't imagine, um, you know, I practice chiropractic, so I'm more on the alternative healthcare side of it. So for me that, you know, and I've been doing this for about 20 years, so I I don't even know if I remember the moment. I I don't know if I had a moment like you had where it was kind of like, what is happening, right? The emperor has no clothes on, almost to, to use a, a, a Dr. Kirsch's book title there. But but my point in this is when you, you've, like you said, I but so many people, I've, I've worked with a lot of patients over my years, and I've if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me that they have a chemical imbalance and they were told that they have a chemical imbalance, um, we, I would have a lot of money if I had a nickel for every time. And it, and, it, 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 and it blew my mind because just what you're saying, when you just did a little bit of due diligence, in your case, you had access to some high-ranking people. So you went to the top of the top and you said, hey, all I'm asking for is where's the science to validate that? And his answer is essentially, well, well, we don't have that. And so that's a big deal because now we're going to be giving chemicals, synthetic chemicals that do alter, you know, if anything, I, we've had some other people on this show that you would know and, and that said, like, if we one thing we know about these drugs is they actually cause chemical imbalances. We know that for sure, right? But they certainly don't fix them. But that had to be a profound moment. And this has implications outside of just schizophrenia or bipolar. Or, I mean, we're talking depression. We're talking ADHD. We're talking anxiety because it's basically the same um, narrative around all of that. Is there anything you want to clean up about what I said there or add no, to No, no, no. You, you, this is the heart of the betrayal because, you, you know, medicine is based on the idea that patients will have informed consent and the, the practitioners will be honest both about their research and what they know and they do not know. 
And this whole chemical imbalance story told of great progress, that we had found the chemicals that caused madness, that caused kids to be, you know, too hyperactive in school, that caused depression, and we could fix them. Now, that's a story of great medical progress. It's also a story that tells you 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 have something wrong with yourself, and you need to take these drugs, apparently for life, to correct that. And here's the thing about this. Once I was told that by people I interviewed, I went to the literature. And if you find, if you really trace the chemical imbalance story, you find that it arose from an understanding of how drugs acted on the brain as a hypothesis. So, for example, they discovered in the 1960s that antipsychotics worked by blocking antipsychotics. And then they uh, hypothesized, well, maybe schizophrenia is due to too much dopamine. Okay, that's a hypothesis. But then even by the late 70s, they were saying, well, we're not really finding that people have a problem with the dopamine system before they go on the drug. But we find that after they go on the drug, because the drugs block normal dopamine transmission, the brain trying to uh, compensate for that blockade actually increases its own dopaminergic system. It increases its receptors for for this neurotransmitter, meaning that the drug induced the very thing, the very abnormality that had been hypothesized to cause schizophrenia. And with depression, for example, it's the same thing. We found that the first antidepressants worked by drugs that up serotonergic activity. So they said, oh, maybe depression is due to too little serotonergic activity. And as early as 1984, the NIMH in a study said, hey, before people going on these drugs, we're just not finding any lesion in the serotonergic system. And there was many more such studies uh, of serotonin in depressed patients. And in 1998, the American Psychiatric Association in its own textbook said, this was a hypothesis. We didn't find it to be true. And there's no evidence that uh, low serotonin is a cause of depression. And yet at that same time, the public was being told in educational campaigns by the American Psychiatric Association. The NIMH was on board. We had ads from drug companies saying, hey, take your antidepressants because they fix a chemical imbalance. And you see the extraordinary betrayal. And just to finish on this, in 2004, Kenneth Kendler, who uh, was a co-editor of Psychological Medicine and the leading researchers in the world on studying the chemistry of mental disorders said, we have hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorders, and we have not found them. So that's the betrayal. Now, the second part, Dr. Well, what you're talking about is absolutely true. Whereas the research found that they didn't find any particular neurotransmitter abnormalities prior going on to the drugs, they found that these drugs perturbed normal neurotransmitter activity. And in response to that perturbation, the drug goes through what's known as compensatory adaptations. And now I'm going to quote you from something from Stephen Hyman, who was a director of the NIMH, who in 1996 wrote a paper on this. He says, at the end of this compensatory process, the brain is operating in a manner that is both qualitatively and quantitatively different from than normal. So these drugs ultimately 
induce the very abnormalities that were hypothesized to cause mental disorders in the first place. And that's the betrayal. So, Bob, let me, okay, so this goes right into what I, I, I thank you for this, just, I, I, you know, I know we talked a little bit offline earlier, and, and we were just talking about the show, and you said, you know, what I find best, you know, is just to, just to speak to facts, speak them calmly, so people can know what's really going on here. But the, okay, so this creates a couple of questions just initially for me because, um, and I've heard you articulate this, and I and I wouldn't I would love it if you would again today. Um, first thing would be this: um, sh- one of the things that you've done a brilliant job with over your career is is talking about the long term effects of these medications because oftentimes that's just frankly never done. Long term from ADD medication, long term for a depression medication, long term for schizophrenic medications, any of these antipsychotic, antidepressants, anti uh, any of those medication classes. So, but to, but honestly, that to me is not super confusing. I still want you to talk about it. I'm going to get to a question here in a minute, but we experience this in any way that we've ever done. I remember, you know, from the first time you took a cigarette and you coughed to death to, you know, 2 years later you're smoking a pack a day and you don't even think about it to, you know, first time you you, you have a half a glass of beer and you feel the effects to, you know, you're drinking a 12 pack a day. Like a drug is a drug is a drug, right? And when you put chemicals in the body, the body's going to adapt to those. The body, you know, you use some you know, fancy medical terms there, right? But our bodies get used to it. It's going to require more. It's going to try to adapt around that or adapt to that. That's just the homeostasis, innate, inborn intelligence of the body that's going to try to handle it. Anymore, if you started giving me shots of testosterone, my testicles are going to stop making it and they're going to shrink because I don't need it anymore because I'm getting it put in my body. And there'd be millions of examples to use of this. So here is my one of my first questions, I guess, is because it makes sense on what you found in these studies for people that were on them long term. The drugs, you know, the classic, and for most of our listeners, right, it's these people that are put on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. Even that word, antidepressant, is it starts some of the story on the wrong foot, right? Because it's sent, it's almost helps you believe or lends you to believe it's some sort of curative agent that is, you know anti-depressing you, which is just not a not a statement that should be made legally. So there's that reality. But also, there I don't want to misstate this. There is research that shows short-term, these can make your symptoms feel less intense. Do you mind just giving your narrative around short-term of these, what we know? But short-term for people is very, very short-term. This is like, you know, a few weeks. So, you know, a couple of weeks. And then also, I just, just start us down this course of the typical, and I know I got 10 questions in there, uh, Bob, but do you mind just <laughs> kind of starting off on what do these drugs kind of do, but what the real problem with them is and take that whatever direction you want? Sure. Well, uh, I just want to start with this anti Yeah, yeah. Anti- because that what happened was these drugs come in in 1955. Okay, the first sort of psycho cycle. The, the drugs we remember as the first antipsychotic, the first antidepressants. Now, what was happening at that time is antibiotics had revolutionized medicine because suddenly we had these effective drugs for treating bacterial infections. And psychiatry this time wants to sort of see itself, start seeing itself as having the same sort of therapeutic agents as the infectious disease doctors. So, for example, when the first, the drug we remember is the first antipsychotic came to market, chlorpromazine, marketed as Thorazine, 
it was first came to market as a major tranquilizer because it tranquilized people. The first antidepressant came was known as a minor tranquilizer. In other words, they weren't seen as curative. But then over the course of about five years, and as these drugs begin to be marketed, they start. We start calling them not we the psychiatry, uh, the psychiatric establishment does antipsychotics, antidepressants, because they want to put their drugs into this antibiotic model that was so uh, successful. It's, market, it's marketing. It's, it's marketing. marketing. Yeah. But it's also marketing for the guild to sort of elevate the prestige of psychiatry in American society. And the hypothesis of chemical imbalances was born from that name change. Oh, if they're antipsychotics, antidepressants, they must be antidotes to something. Mm. And then, then what happened, of course, is they didn't find that to be so, but it was such a powerful sort of marketing message and elevating their status, they just kept going with that story. That's how that happened. Now, in terms and it's of the- physiologically, and I, I'm sorry to sit on this, Bob, I yeah. just want for our listeners, and I mean this lovingly to a person that's struggling with some some of those challenges, right? And we talked about this. You And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but nobody is denying the reality that they are human beings that are suffering with these things, Right. With feelings, oh, no, of, yeah. of course not. And so it's just that it's just that that what we the story we were told about how to fix it or whatever you want to say was was not an accurate physiological explanation. And so we have a little bit of 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 unwinding to do on how we were kind of programmed growing up. I know you've said you're a few years older than me, but we just have to re, we have to kind of relearn some things here, right? Um, it's not an antidepressant. That's not a, sustain, a, 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 a provable statement by any science that exists, known or unknown. You read quotes directly from the leaders in that own industry that are mainstream saying, um, sorry, that's not really true. But the, 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 the horse was out of the barn. It still exists today. There's still people walking around right now thinking they have a chemical imbalance that's being fixed by some sort of pill that they take. And the irony of that, and I always tell this to people is, you know, oftentimes, which is, so if you had a chemical imbalance, did they measure that chemical imbalance? And the answer right. every million of times I've asked that is, well, no, right? right. And so I don't yes. want to belabor that, but I do because I because that alone can be freeing for some people to learn, right? Yeah, I think what happens is once you understand this, and, and by the way, you talked about uh, how the body responds to drugs of all types in the brain, et cetera. And that's exactly true, and that's what Stephen Hyman said. It doesn't matter whether it's an illicit drug or illicit drug. If you have something that is acting on the brain or the body that way, the brain, being uh, uh, you know, being this extraordinarily neuroplastic organ, adjusts for that and tries to maintain its normal functioning. So you you see, so you put that exactly right. It's not just this small class of psychiatric drugs. It's sort of something that happens with the body and the, and the brain as it tries to maintain normal functioning. Anyway, so if we First, if we have this understanding that we don't know of any pathology, but we know the drugs act in this way, that leads us to say, okay, well, how effective are the drugs over the short term? Number one, is there going to be a problem coming off the drugs because your body is uh, you know, adapted to it, your brain is adapted to it? And given the fact that the drugs are creating an abnormal functioning, what, is it, what are going to be their long-term impact? Okay, Those questions now need to be addressed and and you can see why they need to be addressed now in terms of the short-term functioning um and and to reiterate what you just said people struggle they suffer they end up in bad spots there's no question that many 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 people really need help and they need something to relieve whatever difficulties they're having during a period of time 
but since we're, let's talk about antidepressants. I have to say the, the, the uh, efficacy of antidepressants over the short term compared to placebo is very small. And one of the reasons for that is in nature, uh, depression tends to be self-limiting. In other words, people tend usually to get better from a depressive episode. So when you test a drug, an anti- you test one of these drugs, mark it as an antidepressant against placebo, many in the placebo group are going to improve. And then you see, well, how much more improvement is there in the drug-treated group? And it's really very marginal. Bob, it's- to that point, because I think that's a classic one. I mean, and I'm just, you know, the cl- I'm not, you know, and I'm again not downplaying real pain here, right? Uh, it's what happens. Yeah. So, but a person goes in, they get put on it, uh, and and when you're saying this relatively short term. Uh, we're talking a few weeks, correct? Is right, that most four to studies? six weeks. Four yeah. to six weeks is while these are kind of intended initially to be used for is a very short period of time. And also, because um, I've read uh, many of those studies, not as many as you have, but this is an area of interest to me. When you say not much difference compared to placebo, I mean, I've seen studies that show, uh, studies about studies even that never got published that many studies actually showed it, it, it didn't work at all. It was a negative. And then, but, but it's a very, like, it's like 1.2%, 2%. You know the number, you probably off the top of your head. It's not dramatic. No, no, listen, the, the, the difference in scores on something called the Hamilton scale, which is how you measure, one of the ways you measure depressive symptoms in these trials, when they look at all the published trials, it's like two points on a 51-point scale. A clinician can't even notice. It's not even, a, it, it's supposed to be at least seven points to really have. And subjective, a, no objective tests, right? Subjective. No, no, and these, these are subjective, absolutely. So you've got that going on. There's a couple other things here, even on the short term. Yeah. These are studies designed by the drug companies, and they, they only uh, enroll people that they have some reason to hope will be good responders. They do all sorts of ways to sort of, in in the design of the trials, to favor the drug. So this is the information from drug company-sponsored trials, and you still barely see any measure of efficacy over the (laughs) The short The best they could do by trying to set it up to show as much favor as they could. Yeah, Yeah. and then what you find in the trials that are done, uh, say, by the NIMH, uh, the results are worse. So even over the short term, you see lower response rates in 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 the in the uh, NIMH funded trials. But so that's the first thing. So short term minimal will, improvement, if any. Yeah, no, but many people will feel better because so do you on placebo. Mm. You know, in other words, there is a natural recovery rate from depression that that, that shows up. That's the first thing. Now the second thing we know about with especially the SSRIs is. After you're on these drugs for a time, it can be really hard to come off. And you might get a return of of withdrawal effects that are worse than you ever felt before. And unfortunately, what we're finding out for some people, uh, their brains just don't renormalize and they end up with with what's called protracted withdrawal symptoms. So that should be part of the informed consent. The informed consent should be, hey, you know, the benefit over placebo is very marginal in the short term. We're talking about with SSRIs and other of that class of drugs. If you stay on for a long time, you may have trouble getting off. And now you talked about long-term impact. And that's what I sought to uh, flesh out in anatomy of an epidemic. What is the, what, how does this, does this drug treatment affect the long-term course of depression in the aggregate? How does it affect the long-term course of psychotic disorders in the aggregate? How does it affect it? ADHD, which is, you know, that's a subject, a concern that is, 
is, is so important to our society and to individuals who decide to take these drugs. How is it going to affect my life one year from now, two years from now, five, ten, and affect my life in many, you know, functioning, you know, sexual functioning, physical functioning, uh, cognitive functioning. These are the questions you want answered. And what you find, let's just stick with the uh, SSRIs and, you know, the drugs we use to treat depression is this. There is a clear line of scientific finding that's, uh, and it goes back to when the antidepressants were first introduced, where clinicians started saying this, boy, maybe these drugs help, help my patients get better faster, but it seems now that these drugs are, uh, once people go on these drugs, they relapse more frequently. So they said, this goes back to the 70s, it seems these drugs are causing, quote, a chronification of the disease or the disorder. And what you see then... Now, putting is that against, we, Bob, putting that against, just if I'm, tell me if I'm seeing this right, when you were referencing some of those studies overseas, um, India and, and some other third world countries, uh, quote, third world, um, where we're using more medications, maybe as you, you said, in an acute phase or a crisis phase, when we're expecting people, and I think there's so many corollaries to this. I, in my world, I'd say it's the blood pressure drugs, it's cholesterol drugs. When somebody tries to get off a blood pressure drug, their blood pressure spikes because their body is, has tried to work itself around that. Same thing, oftentimes it'll spike. So when we've, we've created almost our own reality, and I'm going to say it this way. We say, oh, see, look how bad this person was, right, the medication. We'd love to get you off of it, but we tried, and look it, it's bad. It's even worse, and it kind of creates this self-fulfilling prophecy that happens, then we we work ourselves into a corner where now you are reliant on that drug just as much as I might re- be reliant on on alcohol or a cigarette. And I'm, I'm only using that example because of its physiological effects on your body, not because I'm saying it treats depression or anxiety. I'm just saying it's not that complicated, nor should it be that surprising that when you manipulate your physiology with a medication and then try to get off of it, the body says, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the trap of psychiatric drugs, really, is that whatever short-term uh, amelioration of symptoms you get, your your brain does in your body, but your brain adapts to the presence of the drug, and now it's changed. And now when you come off, you're going to be vulnerable to withdrawal symptoms. And the, the sort of the, the delusion that took hold is, okay, people come off and they say, oh, see, I need the drug. And that's what the clinician says. And in fact, sometimes you see this in the literature, people are now worse off during the withdrawal phase than they ever were even when they first went on the drug. But it's perceived, it's that withdrawal effect that is perceived as a reason because what the researchers and the clinicians say, oh, your disorder is coming back. The underlying disease is coming back. And therefore, you need to be on this drug. And that's what the patient, the person may experience as well. And they start so to feel worse because their body has become, you know, used to the med, if you will. And so now we add another pill or we up the dose or we're sorry exactly. it's not working. And, you know, your, your, your life, you still haven't addressed a potential underlying issue that maybe was or wasn't related to that, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's nutrition, whether it's other stresses, because there's other things in your life that affect your, your mood or your mental health far beyond whether or not I'm on Prozac. You know what oh, I mean? No- no question. When you really think about psychiatric difficulties, so much of these are how we respond to difficult environments. And environments include, you know, uh, physical stresses, emotional stresses, work stresses. And there can be other health stresses. 
but we are beings that respond to the environment and what this sort of narrative, this sort of model of care does say oh no don't worry about mm-hmm. the environment don't worry about what's what you're eating or don't worry about you know all these other yeah, things whatever, yeah. yeah yeah it's just in your brain it's a problem in your brain well that's the most idiotic thing and just to finish this yeah. last story about long-term outcomes. Yeah, what did that is, show? Because I think this is because most people that are on these drugs are not on them for two to four weeks. Let's be honest. No, no, and then once they're on for six months, they start having a time getting off. Matter of That's fact, you're often told, "Hey, you got to stay on this for a couple of few weeks to feel the effects." So by the time you're even maybe thinking about getting off, you had to stay on it long enough to start to be, medi- you know, physiologically addicted. Docking it like usually two months is the school of thought that most people say that that's what it takes for full quote unquote efficacy to figure out if these things work. That's what you often see. Yeah, that oh it doesn't happen right away. It's, it takes like six weeks or whatever to actually start showing up. But yeah, and then by this time you're right. Your brain has adapted to it. It has compensated for the presence of the drug, and it just sort of deepens over time. But what we forget about this, and this is when you when I did this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. When you assess the merits of a a drug long-term, you have to compare the outcomes on the drug, the aggregate outcomes on the drug, the clinical course, versus outcomes in the natural course of the disorder. And with so many psychiatric disorders, they're episodic. And by the way, this includes psychosis. So now let's say on antidepressants, you have a certain percentage of people say, oh, I'm doing okay. Okay, fine. But But how does that, the percentage doing fine on the drugs compare to people in nature who've recovered from a depressive episode. Drum roll, you, drum roll, please, right? Here we yeah, go. And what you what you find over and all over and over again in the psychiatric literature, in a very consistent pattern, in every type of research you look at, is that this form of treatment, drug treat, treatment, on the whole, in the aggregate, worsens long-term outcomes. Symptoms are more likely to become chronic. You're more likely to become in, have impaired functioning. You're more likely to move, say, from a diagnosis of depression to a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So it, particularly at a public health level, the use of these drugs is a negative. It worsens the burden of, say, psychiatric disorder, psychiatric distress in our society. And you can see that. We've made, you know, ever since the 1980s, we've made increased use of these drugs. And with every step up the increased use, we see the burden of, psychiatric distress rising in our society. And to your point, logically, and this is, and I'm so glad to have you on, just if, if there, if the narrative and the, 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 the logic flow of this would be, Hey, there's people that need help. We're going to treat them with this. And as we treat more people, we should actually see improvement. We should see a society with less mental illness. If we want to use those terms, we should see just, I tell you this all the time with heart disease and other things. If we're treating some people with, with heart disease, you know, medically, we should see less of that, but we find ourselves finding more of that. Uh, the, the, some studies that I see, and, and we were talking about this earlier, Bob, which is, you know, our kids are now being, you know, at least the narrative is our kids have more mental health issues than they've ever had. And of course, the logic that's often used is, well, we're diagnosing it better. We're getting earlier diagnosis. And one of the things I know that came out of some of the studies you're referencing is they often use to excuse it is, oh, those people uh, that had the long-term worse outcomes, they must have been worse in the beginning. And I know that's often a kind of a false flag they use to kind of take you off the storyline. Do you want to respond to those those questions to that? Or I know you get yeah, every, yeah. every uh, argument thrown at you. Yeah, yeah, no, let me respond to that. Just, I just want to say one more yeah, thing sure. to this, this story. 
in the scientific literature, as you see the clinical course of, say, psychotic disorders worsening or depression worry uh, worsening, you see researchers then, a handful of researchers saying, why is this so? Why are we seeing this worsening outcome on the whole? And what they point to is the fact that the drugs induce the very induce these abnormalities in brain. So there's actually a biological explanation given for how the drugs act on the brain over time to explain the long-term poor outcomes. I just want to complete and that's in the that literature. part of the story. That's in the literature. Okay. Going back to the 70s, by the way. Okay. So I take these drugs. It, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go lay, lay, lay example here. I'm having a real issue um, that has a natural course with it, whether I treated it or not. Uh, and treatment being, it could be all sorts of different things. Treatment can look like pharmacological treatment. Treatment could look like talking to a friend. Treatment could look like changing my lifestyle. Treatment could look like drinking a six-pack of beer. I don't, I don't, I'm just using an example. And so um, if you use the medications, the pharmacological medications, what we know is it may or may not very limit, have very limited impact on you in the short term. Your body will adapt to that. And when you try to get off of that, the aggregate science of that shows that actually you do worse. Now, what I would suggest as a person that's listening to this is not to downplay your pain at all. I'm simply saying if that makes sense to you and you want that, then I guess the pharmacological approach might make sense to you. If that seems odd to you and you want to look at different ways, then you want to have a more holistic approach that is going to look at, at health and healing and, and mental health as a component of that in a much different way, okay? And I'm not downplaying a person's suffering, but we have to be realistic about the reality of what impacts those things. And 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 so if, is that a fairly lay way of saying that, uh, Bob? Yeah, no, I, I think it is a fair way okay. of saying it. And But, but the point is, and this goes back to your, your point of people are struggling, they're suffering, they need to find a way forward that is different. And... What we have had a system is saying, here's the way forward with the drug. And what is quite clear is that's not the way forward on the whole and for our society. But what, what is, as soon as you realize that, and as soon as you also realize that there is this capacity so often to rec- in nature, in ourselves, with changes to recover from these difficulties uh, in the various ways you're talking about, that's actually a moment of, of optimism. And that offers people hope because, hey, you're not necessarily stuck in this to, in, with this chronic condition. You can do this or that, and you can you can sort of come out of it in a better place. This isn't an and, identity and, you carry for the rest of your life. Exactly. I have anxiety. I'm fill in the blank. I'm bipolar. I'm schizophrenic. I know those words to some people are so scary because they've literally been built into you that literally it's hard for a person listening to maybe even think literally, you mean I could recover from that. I could heal from that. And the answer to that is, uh, yeah. Often. Yes. Yes. Yeah, often, and, yes. And your, your likelihood of recovering is better if you don't go down the pharmacological route long-term. That's what the research shows. Bob, will you, and then maybe yeah. we can go into the kids in just a second. Well, yeah, go ahead. Say, yeah, no, no, that's where I was going. So you go ahead and finish. And then I want to talk about ADD, ADHD, because I think it is so critical because, again, I live in a fairly large city, Orlando, Florida. Um, so we just it's just a lot of people, right? And I've still, Bob, I still hear these stories on a, almost a weekly basis of parents that are told, if I don't put my kid on this drug, the teacher telling them, if you don't put your kid on this drug, uh, we're going to kick them out of school. We're going to not, you know, fill in the blank. And it breaks my heart. And I feel like there's so many parents, and I 
Enos lovingly that have just been wildly uninformed about what these medications do, short-term, long-term, physiologically to their children, to the brains of their children, to the cardiovascular system of their children. And I don't think that the drug is actually doing I know it. The drug is not actually doing what they think it's doing. It's not helping their brain work better. It's not helping them all those things. So I would just love for you to give like your your opus on the ADHD world and and all of that if if you don't mind. I know we're jumping all over, Bob, but I'm just I got you here and I'm like, man, I just want to get every morsel out of you. Well, a a couple of things. First of all, I think the pathologizing of kids where today we have something like 25% of our kids entering college with a diagnosis and a prescription, is one of the great tragedies ever in our society. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a tale of great harm being done to our kids. And that's unique to America, isn't it, Bob? Well, it was initially. Yeah. So when we first started Medicaid, diagnosing and medicating our kids in the 1980s, People in Europe and elsewhere goes, what's the matter with your Americans? This, these are kids just growing up. But, you know, the power of psychiatry, the uh, power of pharmaceutical money, which flows to psychiatrists that will get on board in other countries, um, other countries are now medicating their kids, too. With, with, with Now, not maybe as well. Iceland is doing it almost as much as us. And other English-speaking countries have certainly picked it up. I think we're still the leader in pathologizing our kids. But it has spread to other developed countries. And just to go to this ADHD thing, first of all, we raised our kids in this country and in societies around the world for a long, long periods of time without pathologizing, without giving them drugs. So clearly societies can raise children without saying they have these disorders and need drugs to control them. That's what the history tells us. Now, ADHD was... Uh, first put into the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 1980, and it's after that we start getting this. In other words, there was no ADHD diagnosis prior to 1980. But once we get that, now we start you know, categorizing our kids that way. There's all sorts of efforts to get them to use uh, stimulants and so forth and so forth. And so we have this new disorder in schools, diagnose it, and blah, blah, blah. Now, here's one of the key things. And there was this time it fixed a dopam- that the, the problem with kids is they have too much dopamine. No, not enough dopamine. That's why you needed stimulants to whatever, uh, fix that dopamine imbalance in kids. It was all nonsense. But here's the key. In 1994, I think it was, the NIMH convened a study on on ADHD. And, I, and, and, and NIMH is National Institute of Mental Health. I just want people yeah. to, you're not referencing like Bob's, you know, thoughts on No, this. no. Yeah. This is the leading research organization in the country right, right. around uh, psychiatric disorders. So the National Institute of Mental Health convenes a study, organizes a study called the MTA study uh, of ADHD. And when they, when they do this, they say, listen, we have no evidence that stimulants provide any long-term benefit. That's where we're at now, even though we've been medicating kids for 13 years. And this is the study that will help us know whether giving kids stimulants helps them grow up and thrive. Okay, This was going to be the one that we as a population would have a chance to uh, see whether this was a good thing. So they do this study. And... I won't go into the design, but it was a little bit of a design against behavioral therapy. As There was no placebo group. There was a behavioral therapy group. But nevertheless, at the end of 14 months, there was some sign that those kids treated by experts uh, in 
in ADHD, experts in, in other words, psychiatrists, that they were doing a little better than the behavioral group in terms of greater reduction of ADHD symptoms and maybe a little better of reading. So they say, aha. And Bob, this is, uh, again, just a person, this would be um, a behavioral is like kind of your talk therapy. Is that an oversimplification? Is well, that- there was even, a, I forget exactly, but it's sort of behavioral training to get kids it wasn't really talk th- therapy. It was okay. behavioral training to get sort of kids behave in a different way. In the and I think I think this is important for people to know because I I know that this has lived on where the the argument is well we know that some of those things work a little bit but drugs work the best right and I'm, right I'm, I'm, yeah okay so go on and so this the fourteen month results are still cited for that reason but this study went on and at the end of three years being on a stimulant medication was quote not a marker of benefit, but of deterioration, okay? Now, those three-year results were not put in the abstract. You really have to read the article. Mm. And they were not put out in any of the information by the NIMH uh, to the public, okay? At six years, being on drug, the, the kids that were taking stimulants had greater ADHD symptoms, greater delinquency grades, greater functional impairment, yeah. and um, there was one other. Th- oh, and they were shorter as well. No benefit on any domain of functioning. Those results were also hidden from the abstract. You have to read them in, 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 the, in the text of the uh, uh, article. And they were not promoted by the NIMH. And they were not promoted to the public by the American Psychiatric Association. What gets promoted was that 14-month result. So what do we have from the one study that was designed to say, do these drugs help kids grow up and thrive? And the answer was no. And by the way, the results, this goes into something you said. When they were trying to understand these poor results, the researchers said, well, maybe the reason for the better outcomes for those off medication is they weren't as severely ill. In other words, they didn't have quite the symptomatology as those that stayed on the medication. So they looked at that. You know what they found? If anything, the kids that stayed on the drugs were less ill at, at baseline. So that they said there was no confounding by indications, the scientific term. So here's my beef. We're medicating kids. You know, kids get said they have to have ADHD. And we did a national trial to see does this help kids grow up and thrive? And we found it not to be so. In fact, one of the researchers, a guy named William Pelham, He wouldn't say this in the United States, but when he went to the UK, they asked him about the results from this MTA study, and he said, we had hypothesized that the kids who were treated with stimulants would do better. That was not the case. We found no benefit, none, on any domain of functioning, and that should be made very clear to parents. But is that made clear to parents in the United States? No, it's hidden. That's the tragedy, and that's the, the, the betrayal of our kids is that we had this information and we ignored it. Now, there was a study done in Australia on long-term outcomes, negative for use of stimulants. There was a study done in Canada, negative on the use of stimulants. So it's not just our U.S. study. There's been these other country studies, but we don't make this known to parents. And that's one of the reasons I have you know, stayed with this because parents should know this and the kids should know it too. Well, and, and, and Bob, am I right in saying in some of the research I have read regarding long-term use of antidepressant or uh, ADHD types of medications, which, which fall into the stimulant category, which um, have some similarities molecularly to things like methamphetamines? Is that all still a correct statement for me to say? I know there's 
people get sure. hot, hot about this, but um, and so you know, we, we we I talk about this only because so I know that I've I've seen some research that says um. And this is another good example, I think, of how the science can can get can be misused. They'll say, "Look at these children that have ADHD have smaller brains," and 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 actually, the way I understood some of that research was actually the drugs over the over years of use have caused the brains to shrink. So we're misunderstanding what we're looking at, and we also know that long-term use of stimulants, any just like same of meth, is cardiovascularly very damaging. Cardiomegalia, increased hearts, right? These kids, it's affecting these kids. And like you said, the fact that this even seems to stunt growth, literally the height of the child, um, is is amazing as well. And the long-term effects, and those are just the ones that we know. I mean, I think about this study, I mean, they're measuring some of the indications of, you know, performance in school and behavior. We don't know how this affects them overall from coping mechanisms to future marriage, to their views on health and healing for their own family when they grow up and all these things. And and so I I mean I think it's I think it's frankly the the tip of the iceberg. But also you know I, I've had those stories and I, I don't mind, I would mind Bob if you would just talk to this. You know you have the kid that and I'm going to paraphrase here. And again I know we're trying to make sure we're talking you know not to offend somebody per se. But I know there's people that their their child is quote out of control and they put them on a medication like this and they say it's like night and day meaning my child now and again i've heard all the stories you've heard more than me but right now they're sitting still they seem to be focusing more uh we see a lot of the kiddos in in colleges right that are uh, snorting you know adderall or ritalin or something right to focus and study i know you've had to answer these questions over the years what's your you know thoughtful answer to that kind of language around this? Well, a couple of things. Yeah. Um, one is we still do have to go back to what science tells us about, A, how the drug acts on the brain. And there is some worry about some maybe some brain shrinkage with stimulants, a little bit. Okay. It's more with the antipsychotics. Okay. But we do know that stimulants can cause all sorts of, of physical problems. Uh, they also increase the risk that uh, a, a person, a child, will convert to bipolar or even have psychotic symptoms. That was showed up in a 1990s study. So there's all sorts of risks with the use of stimulants. And by the way, stimulants like um, Ritalin, methylphenidate, it basically acts on the brain the same way cocaine does, except it's longer acting than cocaine. And you're and not saying that as a hyperbole. I mean, you're talking. No, no, no. Yeah. That comes from Nora Volko. At the, at, at, she also is a, a government researcher. And when they did this, they said, yeah, in terms of, of, of what it does is it, it, it blocks the reuptake of dopamine, which is the same thing in, uh, that uh, uh, cocaine does. The only reason I and, say that is because you would not give your kid cocaine even if it had an effect that seemed to be beneficial to them in the classroom. No, well, that's right. You wouldn't give it to them every day. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, anyway, and it, so the point is, first of all, we have to let science guide us. There are, of course, these stories about uh, kids being sort of focused and, and, and less troublemaking once they're on stimulants. Now, in a way, one of the things that stimulants do is they inhibit your normal uh, interest in, in, say, what's going around you socially with other kids. And you may find that when kids are on stimulants, they talk less. They engage less with others. Well, is that really a so that is seen as a benefit to the teacher and maybe even mm -hmm. to the parent? But is it a benefit to the kid? 
where the kid becomes less interested in others. The kid engages less with other in social socially with others. So just because something is seen as a change in behavior right. that parents like or teachers like, that may not be good for the kid. Okay? Yeah, and at what cost? I know some of the research back in the day on uh, hospitalized patients with mental health issues. They loved these drugs. I know some of the history of these medications, right, in hospital. It was really great for the nurses. Right. Uh, controlling, yeah. you know, the behavior of said patients by tranquilizing them. And so the the study says, yeah, this this seemed to work. But again, at what at what expense and to what cost to the patient or to the human? Exactly. And that means in terms of their social engagement, their functional engagement, their cognitive engagement, their creativity, all those things that you want to nurture in kids. How much is that is compromised? by long-term use of, or, you know, steady use of stimulants because they do show up as compromised. That's the point. And here's the thing on this, and as I sort of referred to this, you know, if, if kids are having so much trouble today coping with schools, maybe there's a problem with the school <laughs> and the environment. And when they, there have been efforts, for example, to change school environments. Well, what happened to the manifestation of ADHD in those environments? Well, there's a guy named Howard Glasser he goes into school districts where they have had, uh, you know, a you know, number of kids getting diagnosed with ADHD, et cetera. And he re- and he, what he does is he, he basically works with teachers to create a different sort of learning system. And you know what happens when he goes in? You find that ADHD diminishes a dramatic amount. There was an experiment with cooking, and I think it was in Appleton, Wisconsin. They threw out all their vending um, yeah, yeah, uh, machines, and what they did is they taught these kids to cook. And they also, and also, what they did is they they prepared home, you know, home cooked meals for for breakfast and lunch. What happened to ADHD there? It went down. Um, there's people that have had done exercise programs. Yeah, it yeah. goes down. So what what I'm saying to you is, as a society. If we hear about so many of our kids having trouble behaving, then maybe we are not setting up environments for our kids that are good for them, that are nurturing for them, that allow them to go out and play, allow them to go out and make their own decisions socially. If there was was ever, I was thinking about this as I was preparing to talk to you, I was thinking if there is, now I believe this is in many other areas of health, but mental health just being one that to me just seems very obvious that would really make you want to look at the environment that this person is in as a causative role playing in what they're struggling with. It just because of the, like you said before, just the intricacies of the neurology of the brain and just how, you know, there's just so much to it that it would make the most sense. What are, what kind of situations, and I'm not meaning that that isn't discussed at some level, but we've all lived long enough to know the typical visit to a typical mental, you know, a psychiatrist, which is, hey, uh, sounds like bad. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just try these pills for a little bit, see how you do. We all know how that cycle goes. And so, um, Bob, just for sake of time and respect for your time, where can you give us some where do we go from here? Can you give us some hope? I know that your um that your website has resources for people that say, hey, maybe I want to try this journey of getting off of these. I you know what? Where do you start? Somebody reads your book. I know you you know watches a video, hears an interview. They're going to listen to this podcast and they're going to say, oh my gosh, I need some help. 
I need some help, you know, with my kid with ADD, or I've been chasing a diagnosis thinking that was going to fix me, or my psychiatrist said this, or I've maybe even believed things because I just, I don't know why I believed them. I just thought, oh, I got ADD because I am distracted, and so I guess I need a pill. Um, Where do we go from here? Do you have some hope for us? Not that you're not a hopeful guy, but where do we go from here? Well, where we go from here, and this is what we try to do on our website, Madden America, is a provide information about alternative ways of helping people, helping kids, uh, helping adults that struggle with wit, whether it be depression or even a psychotic break or a manic break. And so showing that really the hope comes from a couple things. One is it is human to struggle in this way. I mean, you you just read your Shakespeare. People have (laughs) difficulties, right? Read your Bible, read any religious text. People have difficulties. But one of the, the hope is um, we are creatures that are built to respond to our environment. And if you can change that environment, so often those struggles will abate and, and people sometimes emerge even stronger from them. So the hope is who are we as human beings? Kids grow up. And the kid who is misbehaving at seven is going to be different at 12, is going to be different at 19, is going to be different at 26. So one of the things is is to remember that life is a journey. We do struggle. But whatever the difficulties we have today are not necessarily the difficulties we're going to have tomorrow. And second of all, if we can change our environment, find meaning in life, find ways to be with others, that is always a, it can be a, a, a source of comfort. And three is if you are taking medications, know that it can be really tough to come off, get help. But at the same time, if you go on Madden America, you'll find all sorts of personal stories about people who came off their medications eventually. And here's the key. They feel like they came alive again. They, they got their life back. So I'm just saying that uh, the hope is, is to be found within us. And a philosophy of being that tells of resilience, that tells of change, that tells of how environments can make a difference, and that tells you that there are ways out of these difficulties that are different than just reaching for the pill. That's the hope. And it's in science, too. It's, it's, it's in science. It's in our literature. And we try to make that known on MaddenAmerica.com. Bob, I know that you've been on this journey for, uh, gosh, and it's always probably when you hear, you know, for decades, right? And I've I've been so grateful just for um, reading your work and following you. It's helped me to, best I can, relay that information to the patients that I meet on a daily basis that are struggling, that have been told certain things, that have believed a narrative. I, I can only imagine the, the uphill battle you've had over the years and people calling, I don't know, all the things, right? Trying to throw you under the bus, trying to discredit you. And the fact that you have just stayed steady and stayed the course and stayed in a, uh, an area that is very contentious, that's, uh, and matter of fact, even more than ever today with the struggles that we're seeing with our children and, and such, just with the times that we're living in. So you feel a little bit to me like a, a, like a voice in the wilderness, right, uh, crying out, <laughs> uh, saying, hey, there's another way. And matter of fact, the thing I think I do appreciate you just from my background is that you that you are more than comfortable bringing the evidence to that and and the evidence based to that and you know I can just tell your desire to help us understand 
understand this and think about this differently. And so um, I know we've never officially met in person, but just thank you for the work that you've done and continue to do. And we will hope to get your information in the hands of more people so they can uh, just experience, like you said before, just uh, life as it is, life as it is, right? The, the journey of life. And I think it was uh, just a timely to hear that from you. So thank you for your time today. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I really enjoyed it, really. And thanks for the kind words. Take care. God bless. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.